Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of technology, media, and business in Asia. The show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desks. And Linkshus, the place where you can sell your products everywhere. Hi, Horace. Hi, Bernard. Nice to hear from you. Yes. How are you doing? You're in Finland, right? Yes, I am. Pretty far from where you are, but I hear you very clearly, and it's it's almost magical as to how well this works, how we can have this conversation with such with such immediacy and, and quality of, of experience. It's fantastic. I'm going to tell everyone that I have gotten one of the people who inspired me to create Analyze Asia, and his name is Horace Dedu, and he founded asimco.com, who I followed religiously, and two podcasts that I actually listen to a lot for insights, The Critical Path and a Simca. And Horace is also currently a fellow of the Clayton Christensen Institute. Am I right? That is correct. Exactly. So a Simco is actually, this is not well known, so I'm going to uh, make, make a big revelation here. But a Simco is actually the, the contraction between two words, asymmetric and competition. And the word or the phrase asymmetric competition, I read it in one of Clay's books. And it's a concept that he used to describe uh, the sort of the sort of competition that appears when a disruption happens. In that the, the usually the disruptor approaches the market in an asymmetric way and therefore is, is not met by the incumbent in a direct, you know, is not visible to, to the incumbent as a direct threat. And that's why you have the phenomenon where incumbents tend to ignore the entrant. They tend to see it as irrelevant to their core business and, and ignore it for long enough so that the entrant actually gains a foothold market and expands from there to the point where they're able to actually take the core of the business away. That crucial element of asymmetry between competitors is at, at the root of many, many many historical story fables legend in our collective histories david and goliath for example great great you know the, the sun tzu's the art of war is filled with this type of of advice of how to combat your fight with with uh, with an asymmetric way also a lot of asian uh, martial arts depend on that principle so it's it's the, the charge of the light brigade is another example. This is from a, a famous poem that was written during the Crimean War, and that was 1840s, if I'm if I remember correctly. And again, the idea there was that there was a, a, a an asymmetric, or rather, probably a in, inappropriately symmetric attack on 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 a force that was far far greater and led to a disaster. And so these stories are very common in our history and and therefore I, I kind of just synthesize that into the word asymco. Wow. And asymcar is a sort of a play on that on that on that phrase. So what is an asymmetric car? What does it mean to compete in the automotive industry with in ways that the that would allow uh, disruption to happen. And part of this sort of the same quote is based on sort of talking a lot about the theory of disruption. And you have covered Apple for a long time. Is it because Apple is kind of doing a lot of asymmetric? Yeah. So that's when I start the podcast. I use the phrase we use Apple as a lens mm. to 
understand what it means to be great. And I think the idea behind using Apple is not that we want to hold Apple as a holy thing, as a, something that we should all think of as magical, but rather that it is something we should understand deeply and then try to re replicate. Because in fact, what I believe in terms of what Apple is able to do is they've institutionalized much of what is effective disruption, even to the point where actually it's not recognized as a disruptor by many who are actually disruption theorists. And it is because they, they have actually innovated on a lot of what the disruption uh, theory would, would suggest. In other words, they've almost created their own branch of disruption theory. I haven't even written this out in, in, any, in any particular way because I'm trying to be very careful about it and because the theory is something I, I believe in very strongly in, but in order for that theory to be improved, it needs to study what are called anomalies or what are things which do not conform to it and yet which might make it stronger in the long run by being adapted, by allowing the theory to adapt to them. So I, I kind of think of Apple as the maybe the biggest anomaly we can study in that, in, the, in, in that theory because of the many contradictions and yet many consistencies they have with the theory. Contradictions because it isn't a, typically seen as a low-end company mm. and therefore is not, is not consistent with low-end disruption but then again, the disruption theory has also a side theory called new market disruption, which is not low-end, but the creation of new markets, usually to meet unmet demand that is not usually visible to, to anyone, to the world. It's not measurable. And then this new demand is very commonly cited by, by Apple, says we build things before people ask for them. And that, that is, that is a, as, as pure new market disruption as you can get. And, and so the new market disruption part of the theory is not well documented, it's not well appreciated by most people who, who first hear about disruption because they 90% of the cases they read are low-end disruptions. But new market disruptions are what Apple specializes in. And we need to characterize its approach in being able to constantly create new markets. And uh, by the way, I should add that new market disruptions are actually the most powerful disruptions because they're the most sustainable. You cannot do low-end disruption for a long, long time. Usually you have a window of opportunity depends on the industry, and so we're trying to measure just how long that, that might be. But you may have five years, you may have ten years, but you cannot sustain usually a low-end disruption. It's a, it becomes really about getting efficiency into, uh, into your, your, your solution, but efficiency cannot go beyond zero. It's like you're, you're cutting something and you cannot go below zero, whereas the new market, it's potentially infinite into how high the new opportunity can be. This is why I really am very, very keen on Apple as, as, a, as, a, as a study. I would say that, you know, just reading the books about the history of Apple, for example, this Becoming Steve Jobs, which I highly recommend, mm -hmm. Brent Sch uh, Schlender's book, you know, there you get to see how they came to discover their own approach. And it's been one of just, you know, series of turns and twists made possible by Steve Jobs. But they came to that point where they understood how to repeat create new and that's the formula that makes Apple successful today and and if you understand that you also understand that it's sort of the goose that lays the golden eggs so you don't worry about worry about the the goose and you try to you try to understand how it works most people are not paying attention to the goose at all they're just paying attention to the eggs that come out and mm -hmm. and and think that well since they've had four or five eggs there's not enough gold in a goose to make another egg 
but it's you know and they they tend to kill the kill the goose to find where the spare <laughs> that's mm. the way the fable goes right you try to you destroy the instrument that creates the wealth and what apple under tim cook is really trying to keep everybody's hands off the goose just do not touch it we know we we are not allowing any investors, anyone else to come in and suggest that that goose is is, is it can be destroyed at all, and that's that's the that's the preservation of an algorithm for creating new market disruptions. That's how I see it. It's interesting that you talk about Apple as kind of sort of the counter example. It's a little bit in science, right? When we try, we have an hypothesis, and we in science, Apple is the counter example of everything that most business theories talk about. Yeah. I mean, historically, have you seen any company similar to Apple? I don't know whether you know about Sony, for example, in Japan. Sure. Yes, Sony's often cited actually mm. as a precursor. Sometimes Disney, but the, the the problem is here that there are many. In fact. I would say all great companies are predicated on one disruption. They were able to successfully solve a an unmet challenge, whether it was transportation, and that would be Henry Ford, or aviation would have been, you know, the 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 Curtis company that built the first commercial aircraft and others in in Europe. Whether it was you know electricity and 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 General Electric, these these companies were built on these principles and tend to once they they optimize around that solution. They tend to create sustaining improvements or efficiency improvements thereafter. And they, but they stick to that working formula. The difference with I think that between those companies and companies that are actually really much much more likely to live long term. So it's about longevity. Is that firstly, just let's be clear: most companies do not live as long as we do. This is an important observation, and we need to really, really absorb that idea that we think companies are powerful, but they are actually so fragile that they usually don't make it as long as we do in, on this planet. And in fact, many of them usually don't make it as long. You know, they'll remain on top uh, uh, longer than a dozen years or so. The the average lifetime for a Fortune 500 company to be in the index is now about 15 years. And so, th there, th this problem of building something that will last for a long time is is very, 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 very hard. And and so, therefore, the, what I'm suggesting is that the, the the way to make that happen, to make companies live a long time. And be prosperous for a long time is about repeating, being able to do more than one thing. So you'd repeat that success you had with a new market creation again and again and again. And the examples that are cited are Sony because Sony was able to build these great market making innovations starting mostly to do with consumer electronics and mostly to do with miniaturization. And they were building on the back of transistors. Transistors that allowed amplification and analog uh, technology to be shrunk down and, and th those improvements allowed them to introduce all these new product categories. And so Sony was seen as absolutely invincible for about 20 years building on that, on that core technology base. But it, it, it's, Microsoft is another one I would say, although it's, I see it more as, an, as a low-end innovator because they were they were able to come in with various techniques like bundling for office and also bundling within windows of things like networking and mail and 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 those services they ended up rolling out during the 90s and and Microsoft was able to do that dozens uh, you know or maybe tens of times and it 
put out of business a lot of other integrated players like uh, Lotus and, and uh, Novell and IBM's business as well. So it, it's, it's important that, you know, I don't want to detract from Microsoft. It's just that Microsoft expanded markets. I don't think that they actually really created something brand new. They tended to either low-end disrupt or, or expand with, with uh, lower pricing. But yet there are these things where they were on a run and, and, and they were just able to do that repeatedly. And then somehow it stopped. And both Sony and Microsoft stopped this. In, and before them, General Motors was very innovative during 1950s, mostly to do with you know, configuring cars, designing new car new car concepts and things like that and again they also ran out of innovation potential and so what I'm what I'm trying to figure out is Apple is 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 if Apple is on a on a potentially a longer streak or potentially a perpetual streak that allows them to keep this going and the other example I give also is Pixar which Pixar is very very impressive because here's a company that set out to make a blockbuster and then after succeeding, made another one and another one and another one and another one. There's never been anything like that in the movie business where every time you start on a project, you only you, you ship a product that ends up being a blockbuster. Movie studios work on the portfolio principles. So you have some winners and a lot of losers. And on average, you try to hope to keep a, a positive net return and increasingly they become more formulaic with their approach so you end up with with not very very great storytelling anymore but and nevertheless what what Pixar did is that I you know I call them a blockbuster manufacturing engine so they just keep the, keep putting those out there are limitations all of these schemes or all of these mechanisms are limited because typically you're not fast you're not able to do this you know in a way that you sort of look at, okay it's it's we got to have a, a new a new market innovation every six months or every year. Usually, you can only get those every couple of years, and sometimes it's three, sometimes it's it's ten. You don't know how long it's going to take. In the case of of Pixar, too, I mean, those movies we see are in development for like six years, so it's not at all something you can scale necessarily. But still, somehow, after all is said and done, here's this company that's been doing it for a while with what is essentially minority market shares in all of its core markets. And yet, is the most valuable company in the world, and and so they've taken that formula, which was kind of maybe would have seen, been seen as sort of appropriate for artistic, creative enterprises, and made it into such a powerful force that the world is just now looking at it as 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 a, as a, as a completely anomalous sort of magical thing. Mm. I wanted to sort of ask you about this for a while because I've been listening to the uh, critical path. So Pixar, after being acquired by Disney, have actually kind of infected Disney Animation Studio with kind of the new energy and started, even the Disney mm -hmm. Animation is producing blockbusters now like Frozen, you know, and all Correct. these new. So isn't the kind of the cultural, the, I mean, because Pixar and Apple both came from the same founder, they share some very interesting, similar cultural roots. It's not just... Yep innovating on its own as a company but it is also able to be acquired and infuse its culture exactly into because couple. if you think about it can I, I there's several words i can no one has yet devised the perfect word to describe what it is that that makes a company operate in a successful way and i i use i borrow words i borrow words like algorithm which is from computer science I borrow, borrow words, we borrow words like DNA, which is from biology. Mm. We borrow words like values, 
which is fairly meaningless, but it's kind of like, you know, maybe that comes from uh, ethics or, or morality. And then we borrow words like dogma, or, or which it comes from, from, from religion, or, or doctrine, which comes from, from the military. And all of these words are trying to capture this guiding principles of, of a company that somehow are not written. Uh, lawyers, would, you know, the law would have something called like the basic law or the constitution of a nation, which is usually it's written. The difference here is that these are unwritten rules. They're unwritten and usually reside in the head of a person or a, f a set of persons. And so because they're unwritten, they kind of tend to escape and they, they tend to also be dissolved over time. And, and that's the, this is what I'm trying to say is that it's possible if you can, uh, if you can synthesize that notion, this, these, these, these operating principles, and allow them to be preserved, number one, that's very important. Number two, transferred from one entity to, to the other. So what we saw in Pixar, and you get this by reading uh, Creativity Inc. by Ed Catmull, and, and it was Ed Catmull actually who had the algorithm in his mind, how to manage creative people so that they achieve great work and they're actually much happier in the process they're much more productive and often even cheaper than than un, uncreative people or creative people who are unable to uh, release their creativity and so he worked out how to do that at, at, at Pixar and when the acquisition took place he actually went and said you're not going to destroy us we're going to actually reverse engineer your processes at Disney Animation and put ours in it in their place, and so he he kind of had a reverse takeover because forget about the money for a minute. When you buy something, you tend to impose your will upon it. But if what you buy is actually imposes its will upon you, then who's buying whom? Here, I think what happened is Pixar bought intellectually purchased and acquired Disney because they were able to transfer their operating model into their parent and allowed them to actually prosper. And I think Catmull would not be there today if he was not allowed to bring that culture, and he talks about this in the book. And so that gives us hope. It gives us hope because we, we think now that what happened at, at Apple is maybe is that the ideas that again I use the words I borrow the algorithm of of Steve Jobs that he developed over a 30-year period was passed on to his core team which includes Tim Cook but also Johnny Ive Eddie Q Bob Mansfield etc etc those core people all of them were eventually absorbed that knowledge from Jobs and are are now so keen on it that then they're willing to protect that and pass it on again and again and again and that if that can happen it's essentially that the, the company has been able to move its genes onto a new generation which is like essentially what biological life is able to do through through reproduction so the fascinating notion here is that actually maybe we should be using bio biology or the constructs of biology to suggest what organism that we have now in the form of apple is able to survive long term as we said that because survival is an issue is able to survive long term because it's able to actually propagate its genes mm -hmm. something that was never possible before it's literally as if we have the first living organism in, a, in, a, in, a, in an otherwise, you know, uh, a planet filled with, with organisms that, that are born and then die and that do not reproduce. That is, that is essentially the, what we have in business today. Mm -hmm. And uh, the notion of reproduction, the notion of being able to persevere, not because you, you, you stay 
the way you are forever, but rather because you're able to to evolve or, or reproduce very rapidly within yourself. That is what I consider to be the cutting edge of business theory. Mm-hmm. And this is what actually I'm doing at the Institute is trying to work out how to present this material in a way that we can all discuss and debate it. And, and we can actually, this is why I think business theory is built on examples. It's an empirical science. It's an empirical social science. The, so by, by that, I mean we, we start with examples. We start with case theory, or, or I should say case, case a, a body of cases, which is really a set of, of examples we look at. And then we try to see patterns within those, those examples. So we're not at that point to be a proper science, but we are because there are few axioms or fundamental laws. But but we're we're looking through this lens of Apple and and perhaps you know any other lenses we can find to see what is the right model for business going forward in an era when innovation matters more than 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 anything else. Mm. I have a second question because I've actually been listening to your analysis of Google in the critical path. Mm-hmm. So Google actually started off being very innovative and. But what happens is that during the period where they started to adopt Android and they started hiring more people from Microsoft, and now I think they sort of moved down to become from such a high-end disruption to a low-end mm-hmm. disruption. Do you see that is that could be the reason why Google is now having so much difficulty with the Android strategy? Well, well, it's debatable whether they're having difficulty, but I think mm-hmm. the problem is that I've always been critical because if I use the disruption lens on, on Google, mm. you know, that particular lens with, with the attachments from Apple, that I, I started, I, I struggled with the business model of Google and, and I couldn't quite understand how sustainable. I mean, I, they could do great, but again, the world is filled with companies that did one great thing. Mm. The world is not filled with companies that did many great things. And so the question is, where, what is the next great thing from Google? Because certainly organizing the world's information is very valuable and was very valuable at a time when th- that information was ex- you know growing exponentially and it still is but but it's not clear that search as a metaphor is the way to move forward in a time when when you know we don't have browsers anymore where we don't have screens anymore we could have you know we could have machines that, that have, are more like us and then then we have very different types of user experience but it's it's so there's the question are they moving and also the problem is that they never quite got a business model the, the, the half of the story of disruption is that you have technology which which is enabling and empowering but at the same time you have to have a business model that allows that technology to be further refined and developed over time if you don't have the business model you don't have the fuel to make the technology go better by the way i should just make one small Mm-hmm. footnote or, or this, uh, sort of uh, uh, side note here that if you look at other technologies that developed without business models and they do exist mostly let's say space technology military technology a lot of infrastructure like roads that sort of thing the reason those are sustained is because a government steps in and says I will direct this effort by deciding on behalf of quote shareholders which are actually voters I'm going to decide how to allocate resources to make improvements on that technology so it's not driven by a profit model but it's driven by a, a, the, the good of, of a population determined through their representatives and so uh, that is a model that is a, an alternative 
to the one I'm talking about. And also, even in totalitarian regimes that we had in the Soviet Union, they made great advances in technology. But because there was no fuel of profits, they actually tended not to run very far and they tended to run out of potential. Mm -hmm. And they also would go in the wrong direction for a long, long time before the market signals would be visible to tell them you're going in the wrong direction. And so the, there's this, what, what, what in, in a free market society you end up with in, in terms of what innovation is. Innovation is guided by number one, profits, and number two, pricing, which is that signal from the marketplace that tells you where to go put your money. And, and so those two instruments allow it to much more rapidly evolve in the right direction that solves problems for people. And so what we're seeing with, with Google is that you know, they've done one great thing, but without profit, and the profit formula they have on search is not directly related to the quality of their performance as an algorithm. A lot of it has to do with satisfying the end user, which is one uh, set of signals you're going to get in terms of how people click. But then you have to find ways of getting collecting money, which actually has a different set of objectives, which are not necessarily the same as the users. So you have to somehow have a multi-sided market that you're going to build something, listen to with one ear to one a story, and then listen with your other ear to another story. And the, the, the way I, I try to synthesize this into a story for the audience is that I said, think of it as Google A and Google B. Google A serves the end user and Google B serves the advertiser. Google A is represented by everyone in management who ever opens their mouth and also every engineer in the company, but Google B is represented by all the people who have the business side, uh, business interests in mind, who are never publicly uh, quoted, and who who have a team of salespeople which number actually greater numbers than the engineering people. Because if you look at the uh, at the cost structure of Google, you have R and D and SG&A, and SG&A is is uh, is one and a half times bigger than R and D. So there's a huge organization there that's that's listening presumably to the people who are buying its products, but they are not in the public eye. We're, we're not dissecting that organization. We're not talking every day about the profit formula of Google. And I don't know if that's by, by in in their intention to 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 sort of hide that information, but it it, it is it it causes for a bipolarity, which I think is is again. And there's nothing wrong. There are many businesses which are built on multi-sided markets. You know, Amazon is another, you know, usually you have to deal with merchants and you have to deal with distribution and you have to deal with customers. But in this case, what I'm saying is that this, this system gets built and built and built over time. But at some point you have to ask yourself, well, where do I direct my excess resources? Meaning I have just accumulated all this extra, extra cash. How do I deploy it into a new opportunity? Usually, most companies, because they're listening to their customers, their customers tell them what's not good enough, and with, with their wallets, they signal where they're going to go next. And so what happens is companies reallocate resources where they see this data coming from the market coming in. But what is the market for Google? Is it what users want or is it what advertisers want? And then you ask yourself, okay, so what does that mean? What I think is happening when you look, when you actually hear the way they allocate R&D and, and or, you know especially speculative R&D at, at, at Google is that it's actually neither of those two. They don't listen to end users and they don't listen to advertisers. I think they don't listen to advertisers because they have a sort of a those people don't know anything and they can't really help us with technology thinking. And end users for Google are are not giving them enough quality information because all they're doing is clicking on things. They're not making purchases. Of their of their core products, so there's this problem of like there's no information that Google obtains 
from its regular sources of data that tell it where to invest money. And so what they do is they say, oh, we'll just let management decide. And that means really it's up to a couple of people in the company to have the good taste to know what direction to go into. And again, you might say, well, isn't that how Apple operates? Well, Apple has that sort of like centralized thinking, but they also have a great, great sensitivity to what users want. And they know that what they're trying to build is something that's going to appeal fundamentally and, and on multi-levels to, to what end users want. So that, that's, what that's what directs them, right? If you ask Johnny Ive, would you, why do you make a watch or why do you want to make a car? Why do you want to make X or Y or Z? The, the answer is that because I love these things and I think we can make a great contribution and I have essentially he's saying in between the lines i sense what is would be great about this and we can make them great that taste right, it's no better word than the word taste he has good taste about what what to make next uh, and what people want steve jobs had the taste as well now when you when you ask okay well couldn't couldn't sergey uh, have the same taste well you can see that making google glasses shows that they don't have good taste you know and it, there's a lot of other attempts to make technologically brilliant things but they, they don't have appeal with end users so that's i'm not saying again i don't want to detract from the skills of individuals at google but i want to suggest that fundamentally great products are informed by information coming from the user, not to the point where saying, I want this, but rather that you're able to calibrate what you're doing based on feedback, based on sensing what the customer wants and how they use technology and having that sensitivity, deep sensitivity about the, the, the end user. And if, if you're not in the consumer business, maybe that's fine because you're in B2B. That's a different algorithm for choosing products. But in, in if you want to be today's world is I think you've, if you're not in a consumer space, it's not a it's not a story for the whole world to deal with. In fact your Google B analogy actually applies to how I observe Google's operations in Asia. It feels that uh, most of the people I know that in Google that is in Asia tends to be operating in the Google B world rather than mm -hmm. the Google A world because they are focusing on building the business of Google in the search and in the advertising business. And the, the narrative publicly about Google, and I'm saying, you know, not just the uh, blogging or the mm. Wall Street analysts, but it, it's it's it what management also wants to convey using their, during their conferences. They, they convey a, a, a sort of an optimistic utopian view, technology is good, we're doing good things for the world. But we don't understand how that connects to the way they make money. And that's this is why fundamentally it doesn't give you the signal. I don't trust their signals. Their signals are maybe coming from places that are, are, are arbitrary. So I, I, that's, that's my discomfort. I wouldn't say that I'm antagonistic towards mm -hmm. Google. I am un uncomfortable because I can't understand and put my finger on their algorithm, on the way they, as a business, make money in a repeatable, sustainable way. And not to mention that they don't have a track record of winning on a great new business except for search. And when you start to look at the way that came together, you also realize that that was nearly entirely accidental. Mm, correct. So I think this is this is probably the dilemma that Google will have to deal with because I think that they are kind of straddle between the low-end disruption with Android and then they also have this high-end with self-driving cars. So they're kind of like taking... Those cars are a great idea. But again, yeah. when I think about the cars and try to think for far ahead on, on that, because by the way, cars are... are are not going to go as fast as computers did. I, I mean, the problem there is that cars last a long time. 
they depend on on laws and roads which don't change. I mean, computers depended on infrastructure too, but that infrastructure could be replaced very quickly from networking in the in the in sense that how how quickly did we did we evolve generations of networking very very rapidly, right? We went from no networking to you know T1 lines and then you know uh, DSL and, and then we had all kinds of different ways of getting bandwidth, and that bandwidth now is is mobile. And so w how quickly that happened? We're, we're 15 years, but in 15 years nothing gets done especially in mature economies as far as changing the road infrastructure. What if I said to you, well, we need to make roads smart. We need to have sensors in the roads so that we don't have to optically scan them every few minutes in order for us to understand what's happening in the, in the world around us. But couldn't these roads just expose information about themselves? Well, imagine trying to deploy smart roads over as many billions of kilometers of roads that exist. It's just mission impossible. Not over 50 years, it will, it will take many, many decades. And so you have to kludge things up and say, well, we're going to make vehicles smart by having them essentially, first we scan the road with one machine, we store that data, and then we pass through that world with, with our own machine, which then compares what it's scanned, what is scanned in the scan database, and what it sees. If there's an anomaly, we we react to it. And that's a very kludgy way, if you think about it, right? Mm -hmm. it's simply, it's 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 trying to retrofit a smart vehicle onto a dumb network, and and the network is is the, is the is the road network. And what happened in the in the computing world is that they went hand in hand. As the computers got better, the networks got better. You know, one was pushing the other. We had moments when the network was far better than the computers because we had all the dark fiber. Suddenly, we had a lot of more bandwidth than we can consume, but then things just adjusted fairly quickly. To imagine a world where this happens for all the systems that we have as the things that the vehicles run on, which is which is infrastructure, not to mention that we can talk at length also about the other set of infrastructures, which are fueling systems, mm -hmm. and and I don't mean just the the ones on, based on hydrocarbons, but we can talk about the electric grids. That's another network that doesn't change quickly, that doesn't get it very smart very quickly. And if you, even if you want to retrofit your electric car onto the grid, the grid is going to have all hmm. kinds of objections to being having that introduction into its system because the grid is not set up to fill cars fueling systems with the with the amounts of energy that they're going to need and and the companies that are built around that and the regulations that are built around that are going to come into a real problem and so to overcome these problems we're going to have to you know have a negotiation between the vehicle makers the 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 road network and the and the fueling network and those very very rigid systems and so what's happening is that the lack of coordination means that this is very, very slowly. So then, okay, winding back now from all of that is I would say, okay, so Google gets into this game and says, okay, we have a great idea because we can make that vehicle very, very smart. And we know from our mapping technology, we can really capture a lot of data about the, you know, about the environment around the car. And so they put this all together using Moore's Law to get that curve really, really steep. But then it runs into the, the, you know, the regulations involved. And what, what happens if you have an accident? How do you, you know, what happens if, how do you assign liability? How do you deal with, with situations which are, you know, human uh, errors? Uh, human errors are, you know, in, not, not, just, not just from the driver's point of view, but you're dealing with other cars in the world. And, and so when, when you get to that situation, uh, Google is very impatient, but then they, they can't really affect change all, all that easily to the whole infrastructure that they're dealing with. So I, I, I say good job, keep going, but, 
but let's be realistic about time frames involved here. And, and, and then if the time frame is 30 years, not three years, then what happens to the profit engine for Google? If, how do they make money on the vehicles that they might license technology for if those vehicles cannot be deployed in large enough quantities, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? So now if your time frame is 30 years and not three years, you're still back to the first question about Google. How do they make money? So I guess that's a pretty deep question and I probably want to definitely continue this discussion with you on Google at some point in time. Here's the producer's note. The first part of the interview with Horace Dedu ends here. Yes, we have another two parts of the interview to go. Please look out for them in the next couple of days. Meanwhile, take care and best regards.